I'm Lake Miller. And I'm Hannah Brown. Welcome to Gem City Diversity, a podcast where we talk about diversity and inclusion in the Dayton area. We're from the National Conference for Community and Justice of Greater Dayton, or NCCJ. NCCJ works in the Miami Valley to increase understanding around the topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this episode, I got the chance to talk with Jane Fernandez about deaf culture. We discussed her experiences growing up from K through 12 school and into college, some of the barriers she faced throughout her life, and how she got to where she is now as the president of Antioch College. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me today. <laughs> so I'm wondering if first you can start by introducing yourself, um, say a little bit about what you do, and then we'll jump into questions. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me here for the interview. I'm really excited to be with you and learn more about your program. My name is Jane Fernandez. My pronouns are she, her, or they, them. I am president of Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and I'm, I'm deaf. <laughs> deaf since birth. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here and share a little bit about being deaf and uh, challenges and opportunities in that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I'm wondering if you can start by sharing a little about your experiences growing up through education, college, and into adulthood as a deaf individual. Yes, um, I can share some of my experiences as a deaf person growing up in terms of education, college and adulthood. I went to public school. Um, I started school in kindergarten. When I was five, I went to public school. But before that, um, I had a lot of instruction at home. I would say home instruction because my mother was deaf too, born deaf too. She had her own speech and audiology teacher who worked with her at their, my, my grandparents' farm in West Boston, Massachusetts. So when I was born, my mother pretty much knew right away that I was deaf. So she contacted that same, same woman, Catherine Madigan, to come back and work with me as, as an infant. I know, I don't remember any of it, of course, <laughs> because you know, I just don't remember that time, but I'm sure that I got a lot of foundation for success from that. I went to public school, as I mentioned. I had some great experiences. Generally, things went collegially. You know, well, I wasn't really great friends with people, but it was fine, collegial and good. But I had a few instances of things like bullying, bullying, teasing, or just, I don't know, making fun. 
So one I can share because it was a pivotal example. In kindergarten, I was so excited to get out of house, but we lived right near the school. There was a fence. So my, my house was here, then the fence, and then school was right there. And as it happened, the slats on the fence were not nailed in strong. So I could just move one of the slats and crawl from my yard into the school yard. So that's how I came and went. So it was always, it was always familiar to me. It was my, my place to go. But when I went into class, it was different. And the they're, well, they just, they weren't prepared to have a deaf child there at all. But that was the, that was the time. Back then, they didn't have any laws that provided for accommodations, interpreters, speech teachers, audiology, anything, nothing. So what happened was I saw things like a pencil sharpener, and we had the thick pencils that you learn to write with. What I, was, I never knew about those. I saw people going up and sharpening them and everything. So I said, oh, I want to do that. So I, when I just got up, when I felt like it, I got up, I took the pencil, went up, I sharpened it. Then when I turned around to go back to my seat, everyone in the class was um, like yelling or making fun of me. Then I saw the teacher was really mad, yelling at me. I was like, I just had a, like, what? I ran out. I just ran out of school. I left, dropped everything. I, I bolted and I went home, which was easy to do. <laughs> and then I ran into the garage because it was dark, it was closed. And then I just. Uh. So later, my mother found me. And then um, the point of it all is that. I, I hated that school. I didn't want to go there. Just, I don't have to go. Don't make me go there. Get me out of there. But she said, no, you have a place there. But, you know, I didn't really, didn't feel like I had one. But she's trying to say, you have a place in the world and you will have to take it or else you won't get it. That's what she was saying. So you have to go back there. So anyway, I did go back and then and over time, my mother worked with the teacher and the students and everything, things got better. But things like that happened from time to time. In college, I just went to college. I was going to study science and um, hope to be a doctor. My friend and I both had the same dream. But when I got to college, I realized it's not enough for the science to just read the textbook read the material, study, it's really not enough because it depends a lot on what the professor lectures. And I didn't have any note taker. I didn't have that back then, <laughs> no reason, no, they never did that. So I didn't have notes. I was afraid to ask someone. So I got like a C grade on my test and things. And I didn't want to be a C. Plus, I knew I'd never be a doctor if I got all C's. So I looked around for something else. What could I do successfully to get out of here with a degree that, you know, my father was paying a lot of money for? 
So I found that if I studied literature, I could mostly control my learning because I just have to read the books, read the poetry, read the plays, or go to the play, but based on what you read, and then you interpret that your interpretation or you show that you understood others' interpretations. So I did well there. And then I got my degree in French and comparative literature. And as an adult, well, because when I went to graduate school, I met my first deaf people who signed. And I didn't know anything about that. But I, I felt the strength of my heart pulls that way, you know? So eventually I went to visit deaf people. In when I was in grad school, every weekend, every weekend I took a Greyhound bus to different places where deaf people's homes, where deaf people lived. And on the weekends they had deaf club meetings. So I go in the American Red Cross building, and there's 300 deaf people, they're all signing. And they were happy to see me. They felt so bad for me that it was a, you don't know sign. They couldn't believe it. So they sort of surrounded me and helped me with uh, an immersion process <laughs> to learn sign. So as an adult, I changed a lot from my youth. I made a decision on my own to go find other deaf people who use deaf people's language. And then I learned that language myself. And um, so I've been bilingual since then. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. You mentioned a little bit about this. You mentioned a lot about this, actually. Um, but have there been any barriers you've faced as a deaf individual getting to kind of the point you are at now in your life? I have. I have lots of barriers and um, also found some people who would help me to take the barrier down. But lots of barriers. Well, for example, well, I just remember in graduate school, that's after I started learning sign language. And I realized, oh, that's my really deaf, I'm deaf, that's supposed to be my language, but I never learned. So I really drove in to learn. And I asked, I, I got a vocational rehab counselor. I had that before I learned to sign, I always had one, but I had a voc rehab counselor and she asked me, she kept asking me, don't you want to have an interpreter? So at first I just said no, but after I started learning, maybe that could help. So then I said, yes. And so she got the Vogue rehab funds to pay for interpreter in class for my graduate, three or four classes. Then we had trouble finding one, but we found one. And actually the funny part is not what you asked me, but the funny part is they gave me cash. 
but they would never do that now. <laughs> I don't know. Every week I got cash. I went to the office and gave me cash and an envelope that was to use to pay my interpreters. So I had it in my pocket. Then I went to class after every class and I gave them hourly, however many times. But before I got to that point, my very revered professor, who is a national, really an international icon in comparative literature, whom I, I adored him. Okay, so when I said, oh, I have an interpreter, and then she will interpret what you're saying, and then I will understand better. He said, oh, well, um, you just sit outside. You, you two just sit out here and you can interpret, she interpret out here. And then he went in. So I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna sit in the hall? Okay, so after all that work to figure out I want an interpreter, not only I want one, I need one. It's my language, it's my right. Even the American government will pay me to do it. And then I got the money and all that. And then he said, well, he doesn't want that in, class, in his room. So we stay in the hall and she can hear through the doorway. Oh, they leave the door open, she can hear. You sit there and that's how you will have the interpreter. Okay, so I did it for a few times, but then I talked to different people. I had another professor, I said, I don't think he understands, can you help him? So whatever happened eventually, I got back in the classroom with the interpreter. But, you know, <laughs> it doesn't help someone whose identity is in it's un unclear, you know, developing an identity as something I've never been. And he says, sit in the hall. And so it, I had barriers all the way through. Even um, now, well, I'm not here, but in my previous job, my last job, I was president of the college. So you think, oh, the president can do anything. <laughs> So everything would be fantastic, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> so it's sometimes we had board meetings and it's really important part of being a president is to have that relationship with the board, a strong and transparent relationship. But no matter how many times we all explained that I'm not caught up minute by minute to what anyone's saying. It could be a little bit of lag between the interpreter finishes and when it's time for me to say something. Or it could be shorter or longer, we can't tell. But we have to be sensitive to it, not just snap one person after another. It would be good if you would say, put your hand up and say, and then someone say, you talk, and then I know I can follow the conversation. But they never, really never, never, never understood. So at times, I'm the president, I remember distinctly one time, uh, they were talking like all over the place about something, I was doing it. 
my initiative. And they really didn't know anything. I know. And they just kept talking. I had my hand up. I was, put my hand up. I sat there for like 20 or 30 minutes. No one asked me. But some of the younger trustees, they knew. They saw me with my hand up. So then we started making eye contact. And every time someone ignored me, we laughed because it was so blatant. But even after we, I got I explained, they still didn't understand what they did. So things like that, you can be so present. Not, I'm not just halfway there, I'm present in the meeting. And I'm present even if I don't understand, I'm all there. But they still ignore me. It's really hard thing to to take, I guess it's hard to take. I know they don't mean it, but still, it's, com it's common sense. Yeah, that that is that is crazy to me to think of people just because you wouldn't just blatantly ignore someone mm -hmm. who's trying to say something, but when it's like that, it's you know people act like they can't, they don't pay attention to the people around them, and so that is. Crazy. And especially your story of the professor having you sit in the hallway with your interpreter is it, you know, there's so much of college and grad schools being That's like, don't drink class. water from the babbler, you know, I mean, <laughs> the same concept. It's so much of it is being present in the class and being part of this class and this cohort kind of all together. And the professor just having you miss out on those important aspects of learning and of education is it's crazy to me to to think about that so yeah well thank you and so I'm really wondering you spoke about this kind of how you've worked up to kind of where you are now but I'm wondering kind of how did you get to where you are now at Antioch you spoke about being a president at a college previously so, but how did you get to this point of being this executive, this college president at a small college? From the beginning, how did it happen? I, I, I just, um, I, I, I really, honestly, I just tried to do my best, whatever I was doing. I never had a goal, I'm going to be um, anything. I did have a goal at one time, I wanted to be a doctor, but that was like canceled in a moment when I realized I'm never going to be able to get all the information that I need. So I didn't really have a goal after that, I just tried to get through with something I could have a degree in and leave with a degree. So the, the change, things changed, but um, I just tried to do the best I could. So I went to University of Iowa graduate school. Just lucky, I don't know, really just lucky that I ended up in Northeastern University in Boston of working as a department chair in ASL programs. 
it's odd that I was hired. My first job in academia hired as a department chair. No one has one does that. So in some ways I lost my faculty hood, you know, my faculty role. But I was teaching, I was teaching, but I was also the chair. So I was working with faculty who have tenure and I was the, the chair with the schedule and the student complaints, going to the dean's meetings and all that. I, I don't know how it happened. I just ended up there. Then um, I moved to another job at Gallaudet University, the University for Deaf, Hard of Hearing and Deaf Blind Students. I didn't stay there long because I moved to Hawaii. To um, I met Jim Fernandez at Gallaudet, and then the president of Gallaudet signed him to go to Hawaii. So a short time after he and I went there, I thought I will never have a job here. I thought it will never happen. It's so different, and I don't know anything about this culture. But then it happened that the community college wanted to create an interpreter training program. So I applied for that and I was hired. I worked for two years. I set up an ASL interpreter education program and hearing students, plenty of hearing students came. And two years, many of them had the certification from our registry of interpreters. Many took that test, some had to take it again, some passed, but they're still interpreting in Hawaii which is really, they need, we need, because deaf people in Hawaii have very scarce services. Then, oh, then uh, they started advertising for a person to be the head of the deaf school in Hawaii. And I can't remember now, I applied for that. And then they hired me to do that. So I uh, five years there, I got experience in what's like a, a public school. It was a public school with deaf, hard of hearing and deaf blind students. I got to know families with deaf children. We brought families from all the different islands to Oahu to help families learn sign language, learn how to interact with deaf children, learn how to read books, all those things. Then, I don't know, we just decided maybe we're done with Hawaii or we maxed out. My husband, Jim, had a job working at the Gallaudet University Regional Center in Hawaii the whole time. So I applied for another job at Gallaudet. I was hired. So I worked on national deaf education programs reading, family involvement, and transition to uh, college or career. That was part of the federal government, so it's a lot of meeting, meeting senators and reps and things like that. Then uh, the president, King Jordan, picked me as provost. So that was pivotal. But it was a very difficult thing that occurred, but it was pivotal. 
to my career. I worked for five or six years as a provost at Gallaudet. So the work is the same. Provost at Gallaudet is the same as provost at Boston University. It's the same thing. But the, you know, the people, deaf people, that's different. But so I worked at Gallaudet, I got bona fide experience in a university. But uh, when I applied to be the president of Gallaudet University, so, uh, well, I applied President King Jordan announced he was retiring after 12 years, something like a long time. And so I decided to apply to be the president of Gallaudet University. It's another pivotal one is I went through the interview process to be a president at the university, which is exhaustive, comprehensive and exhaustive. But I went through, I had the experience. And they hired, they hired me. But before I ever joined the office of president, there was a huge worldwide protest against me as Gallaudet University president. It went on for nine months, worldwide, nasty, very nasty. So for example, my daughter Erin was in middle school and she, the school got calls threatening my daughter. So I had to ask my husband, go get her out of school now. So he left Gallaudet, he went to the school, he got her out, brought her home. Nasty things, un unnecessary. Well, one time I went home for the evening. During the protest, I was at Gallaudet all the time, of the meeting, talking, trying to resolve things ongoing. But at one point I said, oh, I'm going to take a break, I'm going home. So I went home, I slept, it was nice. I got up, I got in the car and the driveway was covered with nails. So that means someone, I mean, I didn't announce to the whole campus, I'm leaving to go home now, I didn't. But I told some people tonight I'm going home to rest the first time I've been home in weeks. Someone saw that and decided to put the nails in the driveway. Anyway, okay, so clearly uh, I'm not deaf, deaf enough. So what I would say, still somewhat like, I, I'm deaf, I can't hear, to be clear about that. I'm deaf all the way, as deaf as deaf can be. But I'm not culturally deaf. ASL is not my native language. I can sign without my voice. I can understand deaf people. But like with you, I use my voice and sound. It's my choice. So though deaf people of Gallaudet don't want that to happen, don't want any Gallaudet president to stand up and use voice. And King Jordan, he did that. He signed and used voice. And they felt that he hurt the cause of deaf people. So they didn't want a next president to do the same thing. But not only that, I was born deaf. I have a deaf mother, I have a deaf brother. I'm not just popped up deaf out of the blue. All right, so after the protests, um, well, basically it happened that 
uh, at a board meeting discussion, we, board and I, decided that we would just walk away. I already had a contract signed with a salary for three years. I just said, don't, let's not sue or anything. Just rip it up and go separately. So we did. Then, of course, I thought, again, I'm never going to get another job in my life. <laughs> I applied. Well, one thing is I got a senior fellowship at the John B. Cole Global Diversity and Inclusion Institute. That helped to stress my commitment to diverse racial and ethnic diversity, gender diversity, GLBTQ diversity, because that's what her, her institute did. She just gave me the position. I didn't get paid, but she gave me the position and her name was important. So that's pivotal. <laughs> anyway, I applied to UNC Asheville as provost. Stunned, stunned. So I got offered, I got the job. Not just easy walking, no hard process, but I already went through it at Gallaudet. And then I worked there for five, six years. Then the chancellor retired, so she wanted to encourage me to be a president. So I applied to Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Again, another president interview. Three days, it's a grueling process. But I made it, I got the job. And so I worked as a president for seven years at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And then, uh, I don't know, how did I get to Antioch? Again, I just felt like it's time to find another job where I can make a, an impact or I have a chance at making an impact, positive impact or different. I read the job announcement for Antioch. I didn't really know that much about Antioch, but I've heard of it. I went through the same process again, <laughs> interview process, but it was all on Zoom. I came to visit the campus, but even on campus, part was mostly on Zoom. Uh, I think that we, the commit committee, and I just melt, kind of melded. We're on the same page. Intuitively, I understood Antioch's mission and values. They, I think they could see that. So in, at this time, in this job, in, in sort of a way, it's a little odd to say, but sort of, I, I fell in love with the place and the committee, the people, really so uh, thoughtful, so nice, and well, never made a thing about me being different. Or I never felt awkward with them. If they didn't know, they asked. And then if I told them, they did. That never happened before. <laughs> so I think that's how I just ended up that way. But it's not by goal. Like I wanted to be the president of college. Never, never that, not that reason. More about a match between my values and the college's values. That I can see myself there and I can lift up an important mission for many people to see. 
and then more people become interested in going to that, that school. Wonderful, yeah. I mean, it seems like you've been doing a lot of really important work and that the idea of a match between oh. you and your job and the people you work with is so important to have a match between all of the people involved because it's what makes the important work happen. And it sounds like you have faced many barriers within your job, not only from the hearing community, but the deaf community as well. Yeah. Which So I have another example. Should I give you one more? Yes, absolutely. Okay, one of the jobs, I think I was applying, when I got a job at UNC Asheville, I had another interview at Notre Dame of Maryland. This is a good example. Notre Dame of Maryland, same process. Um, I started the interview with the group and the president was there watching the interview. She was part of the interview. So I started and I said, well, I, I sign, you know, I sign and talk, but I don't know, should I sign there or not? And the president said, you don't need that here. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So then I just started talking, answering the questions, but I had an interpreter to interpret what the people were saying. So uh, right then and there, I knew I would never work there. I should have just said the interview is over. Thank you. <laughs> I stayed for the whole interview, but that, it was clear there was no match. Thank you for sharing these examples. I am wondering next, and you've spoken a bit about this, but what is it like working as a college president and being a deaf individual? <laughs> it's very, very busy job. I'm very, very busy. And, um, uh, well, as president, you have a team, you form a team, president's team, and those are the people that will um, make you successful. So over time, I learned that really is my job to support the team or to coach the team or help the, help the team get training. If something, you know, I don't know anything about, but they need to know, get the training that they need. So it's very, very busy. But now I understand that the people that I work with are important ways to get the work done without getting too stressed out. Yeah. I have to do a lot of public relations. That's an important part of trying to make a college more visible to people who, if they knew about it, they would be excited and want to come. So it's a lot of public relations, a lot of relationships with people to be formed. I do fundraising. I go to foundations, write grants, but I also um, meet with alums, benefactors. I'm always trying to lift up the school and why it's important and the values we uphold and inspire people to want to be part of that mission. And so they give to the school. All of that takes a lot of time. There's a lot of building going on before it really works well. Yeah, there 
is a lot that goes in, it seems, to being a college president and kind of helping, I mean, you're helping the college run. You're supporting all the people who make the college run and, you know, trying to get the students that'll make the college continue to run. You're, you're kind of, you are really the coach of this team um, yes. in a way. Or the doctor of the orchestra. Ex yes, exactly. Yeah, I like actually. I like that analogy a lot better. The con the conductor of the orchestra. All the players do their part. All the all the instruments make their beautiful sound. But you bring it all together into one cohesive movement. So yeah, that absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It really was. It was so fascinating and fun to talk with you and to hear your story and to get to know you a little bit more. Thank you for inviting me here. I enjoyed my time with you and your, your questions. Well, thank you. Thank you. See you soon.